0: Hi everyone, I'm Francesca Maxime and welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. It's November uh, of 2019 and I'm really thrilled to have this interview today with someone who um, I've been trying to talk to for a little while. I've been studying his work and really appreciate all of his contributions. Um, I want to say first that I'm on uh, Lenape and Canarse land here in Brooklyn, New York. And I also want to say that my pronouns are she and her. And um, just recognize that we're welcoming all of this in the conversation today um, about really rerouting, literally, quite literally, back into uh, the earth, back into uh, Mother Earth, to the land, to our connection with one another's. And um, my guest today is very much uh, someone who is (laughs) well-schooled in um, all kinds of practices and understandings that can help us uh, kind of not only know what's going on and why it's going on, but uh, how we can move toward reconnection and, and healing. Dr. Michael Yellowbird, he is the Dean of the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Manitoba a celebrated indigenous scholar in social work and indigenous studies. He has uh, just been appointed to this new position this year, so congratulations. Uh, Dr. Yellowbird brings his dedication to creating a new dialogue in decolonizing social work approaches, uh, cultural rights, and indigenous people's health. He is the former director of the Tribal and Indigenous Peoples Studies Program at North Dakota State University. Internationally recognized, he promotes meditation, traditional mindfulness and contemplative practices known as neurodecolonization, decolonization which we're going to dig into, and inspires people to create positive thinking patterns that challenge oppression, which I really want to get into. His scholarly work is shared in several books, articles, community scholarship, program evaluations, and reports, and I am so um, thrilled to have him. He's also read, I read this over the summer at the beach, actually, um, Uh, on Chinnacock territory. And um, this is for Indigenous Minds Only, a decolonization handbook. And he's written a few other books with uh, some colleagues that I encourage you to find somewhere online. Welcome, Dr. Yellenberg.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, and you're so unique, I find, in so many ways, like, um, and, and, you know, you're sort of holding space on multiple planes around uh, these. And they're all related, of course, but rarely is there some one person who can kind of uh, fit into the brain research piece and then the, you know, genocide and oppression piece and the collective healing piece and the mindfulness piece. So I just want to name that and, and, and welcome all of that into the room. So um, we're in fall 2019 and uh, changing of the seasons. And uh, you just landed uh, in your new position here. Uh, And, you know, just talking a little bit about the kind of work that that you're doing. You're doing work around um, all the things that I just mentioned, uh, you know, from a from a social work standpoint, because that's your position. But maybe we could start with a piece around how you landed on getting into this piece of neurodecolonization and, and the mind science or the brain science, or where would you like to start this morning?
1: Well, first of all, I just want to say it's really great to be on uh, this, this podcast and to um, be meeting you um, and, and hearing of the work that you know, you've been doing and, and others have been doing uh, to sort of bring forward a lot of this um, I think emerging information and a lot of it is really connected to traditional uh, healing practices and, and indigenous science and and um, for a long time, you know, I don't think folks have really looked at indigenous peoples around the world as having um, a real clear scientific contribution to health and to wellness. I mean, people have talked about it in terms of like, well, you know, indigenous people live in harmony with this and that sort of thing, and they, they have these kinds of lives, Embedded in all that are these really profound pieces of knowledge that people have engaged in, in terms of healing, in terms of you know uh, um, being together, in terms of how they um, uh, integrate you know different kinds of uh, knowledge and uh, as they interact with one another, long before long before they were meeting Europeans or other groups. So what we see today is not just like one indigenous sort of um, stamp um, on the world. What we see is combinations of, of uh, different kinds of ideas, different kinds of practices, belief systems that have sort of all come together. So
0: um,
1: I'm, I'm very fascinated by that. And, and that's what I think today the world needs is that that kind of discourse about, you know, what did indigenous people do to, you know, um, contribute to, to the world today in terms of its health and its healing. So um, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And that's how I got to where I was, um, thinking about in terms of bringing, but in all these different areas, there could be disparate areas, but but they're not really, and I think when you look at most indigenous cultures around the world, whether they're Maori cultures or Aboriginal folks in Australia or First Nations in Canada, Native Americans you know, or um, indigenous people in Mexico or uh, Latin America or South America, pacific Ring folks or African or uh, any indigenous group, maybe even Russians, Um, um, I shouldn't say that, but Russian groups as well. um, you find very um, clear similarities and trajectories around their belief systems and their connection to the world around them. And many of them um, having had, you know, learned in in different ways of how to um, be with the earth. You know, there were amazing empires that existed at different times that were indigenous empires. Uh, Think about Mesoamerica, for example. Some of those you can still find in in the the jungles of Honduras or in, or, or in uh, Guatemala or wherever you go, I mean, there, uh, there's these, uh, these uh, different uh, um, pieces of evidence that there were these great mega cities, megatropolises that exist connected to one another. But of course, those uh, like we live today, in the, in, uh, the world today, are, um, at some point they, um, they collapsed. And so people, I'm guessing, and what I, what I learned is that uh, amalgamated into other smaller groups with those stories about, you know, uh, not be, you know, being too big to fail. I mean, that's, 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 you know, it's a very different discourse for them being too big fails. And that's pretty mm. true because being
0: too big fails. I just want to underscore that because that yeah. feels really important. Um, especially when we're in a land of, I call it the Capitocracy, the, the, the you know, sort of grow, merge, you know, acquire, and then, you know, Um, just sort of maximize profits and those kinds of things and and in any case um, that yeah so too big is not great
1: right well I mean we see that now with you know these huge mega cities and uh, throughout the world Uh, people living on top of each other people living side by side and of course the spread of disease the spread of you know um, crime and people don't know their neighbors and you know um, so I mean that's that's what I'm talking about is that you know it's uh, become these huge you know um, metropolis these huge cities I guess and um, there's the connection that's been broken in so many different ways between people you know I mean it's interesting you, you could go to a small smaller community a village in, in maybe Alaska or you know, somewhere in Ontario uh, and you, you could find someone on the street you know a Maori person or you know or Native American person let's say. Um, And, uh, you know, um, in the community, people will pick that person up, take them home or care for them. You walk through Chicago and New York and L.A., you'll see homeless people by, you know, the hundreds, by the thousands, you know, um, without connections except to other people who are impoverished like them. So, you know, Western society in that way has really, really failed, of course. And and that's what I'm talking about. When you're too big, you fail.
0: Right, right, right. And you're really underscoring that idea i think of um <laughs> we think we're so fancy as human beings and we are in some ways and at the same time you know we weren't really built um for constant influx of digital algorithmic programming on our social media channels 24 7 let alone uh you know being in a village or friend circle of over 100 150 couple hundred you know people in terms of what we, what we can really hold And so um, our internal nervous system and our internal way of being able to kind of grok relationships and safety, um, I think, is is another piece. And you're talking about the bigger macro piece of, you know, how does this actually societally show up in terms of colonization and then uh, oppression and then uh, division and and all of the ways that that can can really affect everyone. Um, so talking about that, how these other really resourceful energies, these really resourceful practices, these really successful indigenous practices worldwide over, um, over time um, have sustained um, other communities maybe starting there. what are we what are we missing? what have we, what have we stripped away um, that you talk about in books like this one that is needed today um, if you want to go there or do you want to go inside into the brain? it's up to you
1: yeah, no, I think uh, maybe a good place to start is colonization, like you mentioned. Um, the idea of colonization has kind of been one of the major preoccupations of humans for forever, you know, um, and animals, you know, um, and um, insects, and, um, and all the way down to the cellular level and the bacterial and viral level, colonization is happening at different uh, points in time. And um, the whole thing about colonization is that we we look at colonization now. I think to me, is we look at it in terms of is colonization something that was deliberate or was it accidental? Right? Because colonizers, you know, in the sense, uh, you know, had, or had both. You know, they accidentally stumbled into groups, you know, that had resources that they wanted, and then they began to you know, pillage and plunder and kill and and you know control those groups and, and the resources. But there were other groups, you know, of course, that were, were very thoughtful and planned, you know, colonization because they needed to feed their appetites, whatever it was, you know, or they were, had fear of another group or, you know, they wanted to expand their territory and control that kind of thing. So colonization in that sense, um, you know, is a big picture. But when we think about colonization of people, the same thing holds is that, you know, it's really one group of people, you know, um, oppressing and controlling and subjugating another group of people.
0: Right?
1: Mm. And, um in, Really, there's no negotiation there about you know how one can live or can we live together. It's generally people come in with the colonization and then begin to, as I said, control and dominate and then um, reestablish their society. So that I think in itself, kind of, uh, when when people do that, a lot of times the rapid change, the the, the, uh, the values, the beliefs, everything down to the food and, and, and uh, down to uh, philosophies and those kinds of things can be uh, Really uh, devastating for another population that didn't evolve to have some of those uh, values or practices or beliefs or you know lifestyle in their culture, and and the major thing that I think we've learned today is that our our genes, our genetic profile, actually co-evolves with our culture. So if you look at indigenous cultures, uh, you'll you'll find there's a huge number of them that are collectivist cultures. Um, and those that are no longer collectivist cultures still um, can carry uh, genetic markers for collectivism, they call a serotonin transporter gene, and're very different than the individualistic cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and in order for collectivist cultures to be well and healthy, a lot of the research says they got to be together, they got to cooperate together. They have to you know, be with their tribe. They have to laugh with their people. They have to mm-hmm. you know, engage in ceremony. They have to engage in you know, helping and supporting one another. Um, because, um, again, what the, with the uh, neuro, cultural neuroscience uh, is saying is that people who have these partic- particular genetic markers, the serotonin transporter genes, um, they have these uh, short alleles, which makes them vulnerable to anxiety, depression, maybe suicide, alcoholism, loneliness, isolation. So what keeps that particular, uh, those genetic factors um, silenced, then are being with your people, doing ceremony, singing, dancing, um, expressing yourself in, in very clear ways, eating traditional foods, um, you know, uh, doing traditional ceremonies and practices. And those range from everything from running and movement to prayer to dancing to singing. All of this stuff has been studied now enough to know that, for example, um, when indigenous people were invaded, in, in, in uh, let's say Turtle Island in North America, as well as around the world, in, and, 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 uh, in Australia and other places, uh, colonizers generally began to forbid and prohibit and outlaw their ceremonies, yeah their dances. Right. So you know we. We knew that, you know, we look at that and say, well, that was terrible. That was very racist and it's white supremacy and so on. But we really didn't know for a long time what was happening at the cellular, genetic, and molecular levels. Right. Now we know. We know that when you take away song from people and you introduce to them depression, control, and, um, and, and you know uh, racism, and uh, colonialism, uh, and they have no way to express themselves through their traditional songs anymore, then, of course, they don't have the opportunity to raise what we call endocannabinoids in their brains, or what they call brain-derived neurotrophic factors, which help uh, with neurogenesis, so they grow more uh, neurons, uh, so they have these, uh, these uh, neurons that, you know, um, reserves in their brain, so maybe they're more susceptible to uh, dementia and alzheimer's disease which we see with indigenous populations um, mm. um you know and, and then of course we know that singing now the study of singing um shows that not only is there a rise in endocannabinoids which are like the natural opioids in, in, the, in the, um, the body but also rises in dopamine and serotonin and all these other factors you know these other brain factors that make people happy make them feel well yeah and so when you when you look at native americans for example and um, indigenous people in uh, Canada, almost any indigenous people, when Europeans first encountered them, they said, well, all these people do is they sit around and they sing and they dance and <laughs> they laugh, you know, and they, they don't work, right? That was the thing. They don't work. Of course they worked, right? And uh, how would they survive if they didn't have some kind of you know, economy? So, and then they began to label those things, you know, and mostly these were Christians that were coming in. So all that stuff was, you know, um, evil. It was, you know, the work of the devil. And, and it wasn't, you know, um, it didn't follow that sort of the line of thinking of white superiority. of would be a white god and white, uh, and white uh, supremacy, right? Because these folks were saying, well, they worship these trees. They worship the ground. You know, they don't worship a god like we do. Many of them didn't. So mm-hmm. then they began to outlaw these things. As they outlawed them, then... It you, uh, changed, um, you know, uh, the activation of certain genetic factors. It changed the expression of certain um, other factors in the brain or cells or even at the molecular level, um, things like telomeres at the end of the chromosomes, you know, maybe right. they, they got they degraded faster. And uh, so these are things we're learning now as that colonization comes in. You introduce a totally new diet, which is a European diet that has um, uh, milk, you know, from animals or bread. That has gluten and, and um, grains that have gluten, and you're eating uh, cows or meats that are industrial-fed cows. You're going to cre- create a calamity and a crisis in the bodies of Indigenous people at all these different levels, right? Because many of them, many of these groups were hunter-gatherers that you know survived on plants. They're plant-based people, or if they were like the Inuit, they ate a lot of uh, meat protein, but they had developed. Um, the genetic factors, uh, the uh, nutrigenomic factors to break down the lipids or break down the plants or break down the fats or the carbohydrates, right, over millennia. So you come in, you colonize, you take away all these foods, you, you insert your food, and then you've got what's happened, a lot of chronic illness among indigenous people. You come yeah. in, you take away their songs, their dancing, their singing, and you, you make them be individuals. You've got a lot of depression and anxiety disorders. So people have been doing this for you know hundreds, thousands, and thousands of years. Colonizers came in, disrupted this whole process, and and that was kind of the trauma that happened not only to the person, but it happened at, at the molecular level. Trauma to the, um, to uh, as I said, the telomeres. Trauma to the you know cellular uh, integrity. Trauma to the genetic and, and epigenetic expression. So.
0: Right, right, right. I love how you're <clears throat> you I mean, I don't love what you're saying, but I love what you're saying. <laughs> I don't love I, I, I don't love that, it, that that that's what's happened and it happens currently still now. Um, but I do love how you're bringing it down from the outer to the inner and how that really affects, up, uh, affects us in the body and um and how then symptomatically uh you know we'll see we'll witness certain kinds of behavior or adaptations you know behaviorally for survival that uh, may not make sense because the whole uh, the whole system has been disrupted uh, inside from the inside out it wasn't built for that so um you know it's funny i I just uh, did an interview with uh, someone where um, they were interviewing me actually for the international society um, for Stress Traumatic Studies Dissociation, ISSTD, this organization that I'm a member of. And I was sort of talking about that. I'm like, well, you know, evidence-based practice and you're a dean of social work. I'm like, evidence-based practice is fine in some respects, but it may not be the answer for a lot of communities, right? Because you're not going to have drumming and humming be evidence-based practice in a lot of places, but that may very well be the thing that can heal.
1: Right, right. And, and I think one of the things that's... that's um, and I've been I've been um, a strong critic of evidence-based practice because it's such a it's such a um, scientific it's a, it's another form of scientific racism and, and what's and, and so what what happens is that you know anything that is uh, evidence-based you know really follows the trajectory of um, uh, Western scientific um, methods as well as Western scientific processes and rules and regulations um, I mean. We know now that you know, the evidence-based practice of, of many drugs or many therapies that Western uh, you know, approaches have you know, have failed over and over again. I mean, you, you, uh, you, you give someone stats, for example, that's evidence-based practice. For a uh, certain percentage of the population, you're gonna get a lot of adverse effects. Uh, and, and how we know that is that there are some people that you know, um, have different genetic profiles but that's never been studied, as far as I know. We, we just say, well, this person's got high cholesterol, and they've got high LDL, you know, lower-density lipids, and so the doctor says, this is the protocol that's been approved by this blue ribbon panel of MDs that are Western-trained doctors that have been paid by the ph- pharmacy, big pharma, right? And so what they do is then they hand out whatever it is to people, you know, whatever these pharmaceuticals are. And, you know, it maims people, kills people, it damages different organs, uh, people have these different kinds of effects. You know, it works for some populations, it doesn't work for others. But, and, and that's not, that's this sort of very primitive medicine. Today we have an advantage. Now we have, you know, a lot of people are calling precision medicine. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it gets beyond evidence-based, right? So, because it includes a whole, a very different holistic sort of approach to looking at, you know, why someone would not do well on uh, chemotherapy. Versus someone else, why? Because maybe they are, they have a certain there's this, there are certain cultural factors that are related to certain genetic factors that you know um, that served a different purpose you know ten thousand or twenty thousand years ago. So that's what evidence base is like. It's just existing out there, kind of like. You know, I was trained as a quantitative researcher, so I understand how people have used. Um, um, Uh, research you know in terms of observational research to try to make claims and you know then that that works sometimes but a lot of times it doesn't you have there's a whole number of processes you have to go to in order to um to say something is valid even then you can only explain so much of what they call the variance the difference between you know why people heal and why we don't know you know uh, the other factors that are involved there so um, evidence-based, you know, is if you want to say, you know, um, what, I, what I tell people is the evidence base of indigenous medicine and a lot of these things is, you know, tens of thousands of years old precedes anything that Western science has done. <laughs> right. It does. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's ridiculous to think that, you know, you, you have some, something that works when you, you test something for like 16 weeks and then you say, "Well, that works, right?" When people have been doing it, you know, people around the world have been doing this for thousands of years, you know, and adjusting, you know, their whatever it is that they're giving to people, you know. Um, and so that's been going a long time. The reason people don't know about it is because when colonization happened, they went, they killed all the, they killed all the uh, religious people. They, they, you know, they uh, plundered and burned all the the, the pharmacy and the natural world. They they uh, plowed up all the fields where. Um, different kinds of medicines or different kinds of um, things were growing, like in, in the Great Plains area, for example. One of my colleagues at the University of Kansas, uh, Dr. Kelly Kincher, who is an environmental scientist that I work with, who just finished a book now on the Arikara ethnobotany, has mm. written extensively, extensively about wild tomatillos, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, um, white, or not, I just say Western farming methods are con- considered to be, you know, Weeds and, and you know um, and plowed them under and built you know uh, parking lots on top of them or put monocrop over them, but you know through his research we now know that you know uh, wild tomatoes have as many as eleven or thirteen different kinds of compounds that are anti-cancer compounds that you know can even uh, um, address um, uh, pancreatic cancer, which you know Western science has no tool for that right now. Right, and this is this is a plant. Why? Well, because we know that from people like um, Mark Matson's work. Mark Matson, I think, is the chief of. Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting uh, where he is, but he's he's, in, uh, he's a really serious scientist. knows that you know what we've been doing is indigenous people and people before we had Western the Western world is we ate plants that had low levels of toxins in them. Well, why is that important? Because what it does is it, 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 it uh, causes what they call mild bioenergetic stress to the body, mm. and then kind of pumps up the immune system. So the immune system doesn't attack us; it's paying attention to these mild um, bioenergetic, you know, um, toxins that are in potatoes, for example, that are in tomatoes or the nightshades. So people who knew this, you know, for a long time. And they were experimenting with this, and, they, and, they, and their bodies finally got used to eating potatoes. Or like the Incas, they, you know, hybrided, and they, and they um, um, you know, uh, bred them so that maybe they didn't have as many toxins, but they had all these other properties. This stuff has been going on for thousands of years. I mean, no one can tell me that, you know, the Mayans didn't use some kind of evidence-based, you know, uh, engineering, science, and yeah. physics. To build pyramids, right? Right. You can't tell me that the, the Inca people didn't use, you know, uh, observation and empirical uh, testing, and you know, maybe um, blue uh, the high le- the highest level of of, um, of observation and uh, experimentation to produce all the different 3,000 varieties of potatoes they produced. I mean, that goes on over and over again. So evidence-based practice, that's why I'm saying it's another aspect of scientific racism because those people that claim that have no idea what indigenous people gave the world. So, I mean, that's why to me it's, it's you know, it's, it's a joke. I don't take it very seriously. Yeah.
0: So. No, I, I mean, I appreciate that. And as someone who is... Um, uh, yeah who is uh i won't say forced, who has who is studying it currently i am <laughs> i am uh, much more can uh or, you know have much more of an affinity for what for what you're uh, what you're sharing now um because I do feel like i mean scientific racism is is a very succinct way of talking about it right and 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 it's a very succinct way of saying you know this is how um, you know, we decide. And, and again, if we're going back to the mindfulness piece, you know, it's in the naming, right? Like when you're, you know, when you're looking at something, it's like, is it really an apple or is it process? I mean, this is just sort of like meta meta conversation, right? But is it really an app? Is it really a chair? Is it really fixed? Or is it a process? If we're really going to look down at quantum physics and we're looking at the molecules and everything's moving and you know what I mean? Is a river a river or is a river moving? Um, so, you know, it's just that whole piece of, okay, well, it's, you know, it's not it's not fixed. But in the naming, aha! Now I have a new territory. Now I have a new practice. Now I have a new solution, and I can claim clean credit, or I can uh, somehow um, use it in a certain way that that kind of can uh, direct my my intentions, which are not always collective and not always particularly um, helpful. Uh, for, for, for everyone. So maybe that's a good place for us to kind of shift from the, the, the outer decolonization, um, that much more into, you know, sort of this inner piece around also the spiritual practices I was sharing with you earlier. My training, um, is with the indigenous focusing oriented therapy, um, model, and much of it is, um, around land-based, around plant-based, around um, all my relations, around ancestral wisdom, and um, maybe just sort of like unpacking uh, some of the ways in which we can reclaim or reconnect with uh, what we know to be true, as some of your scientific colleagues are doing, but on on multiple levels. To heal, because we're in bad shape, or maybe we're not, but we kind of are. <laughs> we
1: <Yeah. can> de- <laughs> No, I think, you know, I mean, I agree. I think that when we start thinking about sort of the inner colonization of the body, and, and um, I know you're interested in, in the work and trauma, um, There's there are things now that we're, that, well, I'm studying anyway, and I'm sure other people are studying, uh, is to understand, um, you know, where did trauma, you know, uh, start to begin from, right? And so it's really, I think, incumbent upon us as scientists and as scholars and researchers to not only look at, let's say evolutionary biology and the history of, you know, um, of humanity, but we should really look at you know, traditional narratives of people and sort of what, what they can tell us about evolutionary history, of who they are and what kinds of things happened to them along the way as they moved, out, moved along and how those things influenced the way their genes expressed. Influenced how their um, brains and the plasticity of their brains uh, You know functioned and something even deeper than that I think or just as deep is the human microbiome We have you know know, um, trillions of bacteria that live inside of us uh, that um, uh, exert this tremendous tremendous influence on our mental and physical health and uh, research I just posted something um, um recently now about um, how uh, I think the Chinese are taking, uh, uh, producing, I think, a, a, a drug now that's a naturally based drug out of seaweed uh, because what it does is help remodel the human microbiome in order to address Alzheimer's disease. Mm. That's, that's an inner kind of thing that's happened in Alzheimer's, you know, all these theories about, you know, how it happens or what it is, but most theories look at it as an inflammatory disease. Sort of, and and inflammation happens then, we know now, you know, from a number of different ways, you know, from your diet, from stress and trauma, from the lack of sleep. These are all things that are all part of, you know, being colonized. Your sleep's been colonized, your diet's been colonized, you know, your brain and your thinking has been colonized, you know, uh, your life, you know, your movement's been colonized, you sit at a desk all day. These are all things that that really begin to then affect, you know, these other systems within the body and create, um, Different kinds of expressions, you know, in the, like I said, um, in, the, in the human microbiome, we know now that trauma changes the biome. We know right. that the, the excess um, of um, um, antibiotics change, uh, changes the biome. Uh, different kinds of waters, you know, with uh, too much chemicals and uh, fluorides and chlorines and those kinds of things can change the biome. Anyone moving here from uh, where they lived a plant-based, lived in the earth and Played in the dirt and ate dirt with their food are going to have a more diverse uh, microbiome than Westerners. Our microbiome looks like a burned-up forest; theirs looks like a rainforest. You know? mm. um, and so, when we're thinking about that, that's what trauma does. So, trauma is not only like you know physical violence against a person that we can see. Trauma happens at these molecular levels when colonization then begins to take away diversity and variety and begins to replace that with you know, monocrops and and, and, uh, processed foods and begins to clean up the environment so much that it kills all these important parasites and bacteria. I mean, I've I've now labeled the uh, microbiome parasites, the new great circle of life. Mm. Uh, We look at, we look at that ecology now is the same as any ecology where you would have all these different species interacting. You know, we know now that when you bring wolves back to, um, you know, to, uh, to uh, Yellowstone Park, it changes the ecology of the park, right? They begin to eat more of the elk, and the elk are eating less of the uh, trees, and then trees begin to bloom. The trees begin to, you know, spread. The same thing happens in our gut, and that's why it's so important to have diversity. You know, that's why you know uh, white supremacy and white nationalism worries me. You know, because that's the thing is they want to monocrop, you know, um, or, or you know have a monolithic race. You know, they don't understand that. You know? That how the beauty of diversity, what it brings to the human race, just like it does, you know, uh, diversity in our microbiome, you know, peaks our health. So when when we have a healthy microbiome, you know, we have healthy responses, disease, illness, inflammation, and our genetics, you know, express, um, 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 you know, in in ways they should express. And and our brain models the plasticity and helpful thoughtful ways, you know, where the body doesn't see itself as under attack and so it's not remodeling, you know, to itself in that way. So
0: right, right, right. I love I love what you're saying. And and you know, it reminds me, I don't know if it was 10 or 20 years ago, there was everything about antibacterial this, antibacterial that, and like hand sanitizer and every lotion you would buy would be antibacterial. And how like that that plays out over time. It's not helpful over time, right? And and you know, my mom who's a who's a physician, an MD, an internist, uh, you know, she would talk about how when they were kids, she had four brothers and sisters. <clears throat> they would be playing in the backyard, you know, eating dirt sometimes, you know, and, and that's not such a bad thing, you know, and, and kids don't do that today um, and, and don't even know what it feels like to have grass under your feet because it's concrete and uh, just to even feel that somatic connection. And so if trauma is uh, in a way stopped process, um, that's one of the ways I think about it. It could be too much, too fast, too soon if it's an external event, but also kind of stop processing internally, like you say. And if this colonization piece is a piece kind of like the fundamental um, part of what the Buddhist teachings are in mindfulness trainings, which are like um, greed, right? Like it's not that we can't have or shouldn't have because we all need some, but do we all need everything like the one percenters in the hands of a few, so to speak, or is it not healthy for the collective at the end of the day to to share, um, to be diverse, as you say, to make space or allow, um, as there is in basic mindfulness trainings, the allowing, the acceptance of the natural order of diverse populations. And people like me, who are Haitian, Dominican, and Italian American, not just any one thing. And from my understanding, you also have um, multiple um, nations, your nations um, within you. Is that correct? That's right.
1: I mean, uh, it's interesting to know that, you know, I mean, one of the old Adages or beliefs of Indigenous people is that you know we're all one people really we're all related as we say you know and um, you know we're finding out that's more and more true as as different um, um, genetic companies you know take these uh, swab take a swab of your cheek and the saliva and they find out you know that we have these different markers and some of them are very significant myself personally. Um, uh, what's really cool about it is I, I did the 23 and me, right? Me too. So, and and, and um, I'm not trying to like endorse them or endorse anybody. I'm just that I did it. You know, but but um, what happened was that I found out something that was, was really interesting. So all my life, my father used to say, I'm 100% Native American, 100% Native American. Right? And so his, uh, uh, not his test because he passed before the test, but his uh, sister, my aunt, uh, we took her uh, DNA, and she came out to be like 95% Native American. So she had, you know, like a, like a maybe one and a half percent East Asian, and one and a half percent, you know, uh, Central Asian, and then um, unknown, right? So as they do more iterations, they'll find out more. But my dad used to always say, you know, uh, Michael, he said we came from South America. That's where we came from. So I, I didn't know, you know, I mean, I'm like, okay, Dad, right? Um, there's no evidence of that. But, you know, he said in our sacred bundles, we, used to, we had these uh, parakeet feathers and we had these skulls of, you know, New World monkeys, he did call them new world, new world monkeys, but monkeys and all these other things that we know. It's kind of like our time capsule, we'd say, that reflected these things as we moved along. And I thought it was, it was a very fascinating story. After I did my 23andMe, I actually found out that it had markers from Central America and Southern Mexico. Mm. Right? From 11 different administrative districts down there, Michoacan, and you know, places like that. I'm like, wow. And then it started to dawn on me, like, you know, what other people were saying was that, you know, we came from that part of the world and it took us so many thousands of years to end up in North Dakota, the Great Plains. So people have been traveling and moving all over this, this continent. And so, um, and then in mine, my mother, you know, has uh, European blood, so I found out, you know, we have some. Southern European, Portuguese, and, and I have some um, Neanderthal markers and all those kinds of things, right? But they become significant at a point in time because it's like uh, there are Neanderthal diseases that a lot of us have, but there are also Neanderthal you know, uh, characteristics that are beneficial to us. Mm-hmm. So we look at ourselves, you know, in um, what um, uh, evolutionary uh, biologists call mismatch theory. So at one point, you know, we were matched to the environment that we lived in 40,000 years ago. So guess what? So we, we have these genes then that, you know, help us fast for 48 hours or 72 hours easily, right? And these other processes take off, right? Where, you know, um, autophagy happens and we start eating up the viruses and the bacteria and all the, you know, cellular waste in our bodies. We're, 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 uh, we're you know, we've been, uh, we're born to fast, right? And, and what happens is that, you know, this particular culture uh, of Native Americans did it, you know, quite a bit. And so we see that. And when they overeat, wow, all of a sudden they're eating beef, those kinds of things. They never ate more meat than they ever ate. And now we're getting diabetes, we're getting hypertension, we're getting cancers, all those kinds of things. So that's what's pretty cool about knowing who you are in all these different uh, avenues. Because... Wow, you may uh, have, a, like one of my friends had is a carrier of, um, um, of something they call, um, oh, it's, a, it's an iron disease, the buildup of iron. Um, and Indian man, darker than me, coming from India, but ended up with uh, a gene that would be with Nordic peoples, over, mm-hmm. um, um, I'm still trying to remember the, uh, the disease that goes, over buildup of iron, so he went, got his genetics tested, lo and behold, had some genetic markers for um, um, Nordic populations that he would never would have guessed. So we move all over the place. We we may look like certain things, but when we look at a genetic level, cellular levels, then we see some even greater differences and and similarities that exist. So that's what's really important for us to know. Um, And those things are just now kind of unfolding in, in all the research that's being done.
0: Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but I know I can't. I mean, we still have plenty of time, but, um, but that's fascinating. And, and, and as we're talking, I'm just listening to you thinking about, um, how it was constructed, of course, that race is a thing that race and racial separation, that race, first of all, is a construct. Right. And yet it's a social reality around a constructed division, right. That lies around. Power, privilege, access, equity, resources, no. No. Including, including human labor and human capital, as we've seen with the Middle Passage with, and genocide and all of that. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is, is looking at that as a, um, as a way to demark different people, but it's just not true. It's kind of fake news, to use the term of the day. Um, that that we're different, and yet that we've all been mixed together. And yet that continues to be underscored. And if you look at world populations, I think it's Asians. Southeast Asians are the largest population. And then there's, I think, Latinos, and then Africans, or vice versa. And then, you know, I think European descent, um, white, quote-unquote, folks are like, I don't know, third, fourth, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the reality doesn't match up with what's being promoted, is what I'm trying to say. Um, as we know. And how are we going to get to a place of, of, of connection and of healing? Because we can do our internal work with our own mindfulness practices. Um, but I find half the people are just still like hating themselves so much and don't realize there's a resource that we could be in community and do our humming, drumming, singing things, and maybe feel a little bit better because we've been told that that's not valid, right? And that we can't, um, regardless of our ancestry. Uh, so I'm just and then reclaiming that like a lot of people will say well joy is my practice I will dance I will go I will knit I will you know will, And 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 it could even be like when the 70s came around and they and they killed all the disco clubs and they made rock music be a thing um, Because that was a, a, a really joyful resourceful thing for a lot of communities of, of color, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's that old. is what I'm trying to say
1: right. Yeah, I think you know um, The thing about race, yeah, it is is a construct um, and we look at folks that have um, features, I guess, um, certain kinds of features, you know, hair, eyes, um, different kinds of symmetry, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, it's a a fairly, you know, a fairly primitive way to kind of look at human beings now, you know, since we know so much more about, you know, um, um, who we are, you know, both inside and out. in fact, you know, there's there's research that shows that um, you know even identical twins, same race, can have very different responses to different kinds of things. You know, maybe foods or to trauma or those kinds of things, because their genetics may vary just enough that they they may have a very different expression. Um, you may have a part of a population, um, you know, for example, that's lived you know in South America or in Africa, where there was um, certain kinds of diseases, you know, um, like sickle cell, you know, uh, that you get, and you, you'll find that some some folks, you know, uh, carry the genes for that. Um, the genes will express for particular reasons, yet the brother or sister may not have an expression. So those kinds of, and, and we don't, you know, quite know why. So race, just by looking at people, I think, again, is very primitive things, because we know now that, you know, um, if you're leading, laying on the, in the emergency table bleeding to death, and you've got someone there from a different race who's giving you blood, you know? All you have to do is match the blood and that person's gonna be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, in the same family, people can have very different microbiomes too as well. Uh, so I think, you know, we're moving, we're, we're, you know, as people s- say stuck on that, I think science is kind of moving away from that understanding. Those uh, folks that are doing that kind of science are getting to understand human beings as I said, at the molecular, cellular, and genetic levels, uh, to know that um, you know this, 23andMe, you've got probably now a lot of uh, genetic relatives that don't look like you at all, Mm -hmm. that you're you're very genetically closely related to. Mm -hmm. At some point, if you needed, uh, let's say you've got um, some kind of lymphoma or some kind of uh, blood uh, cancer disease, well, guess what, you know? So everyone in your immediate family wasn't a fit, but someone who's your genetic person that lived on the other side of the world could come and give you a donation of uh, stem cells that would, that would heal you. It's not a question of race. It's a question of, you know, what, what our bodies have evolved what we've been through and what we're carrying, right? So in our, in our small sort of way of thinking, our small brains, we can only see those very limited kinds of things like facial features and and color and size and maybe, you know, uh, accent or those kinds of things. And that's, that's such a small part of who we are. Well,
0: what, what, what's the worst thing do you think? This is a question I ask clients all the time. What's the worst thing do you think um, that whatever part of you is, is believing would happen if we weren't just in our own small mind? What is the, you know, if we, if we were able to just be, Um, open to this idea that yeah there's other people that are don't look anything like us that you know we don't even know that have the same genetic makeup um what what, what's good about believing like how is this useful to us to just believe that we're these isolated little little one-on-one people that we have to solve our own world and our own problems and and things like that
1: well you know from the standpoint of, of evolutionary psychology and biology it's good because that's you know, our primitive brains have, have developed in a sense, you know, from what they call a reptilian brain, a triune brain. And, you know, we still, whether we, you know, how cool we think we are and sophisticated we think we are and how much we know and, you know, uh, we have, you know whatever. Uh, and uh, we, we, we fundamentally are still, you know, may, uh, we still are, uh, respond to what they call the five F's in neuroscience, We're fighting, flighting, feeding, Fearing and fornicating is kind of what it's kind of the job. Feeding and
0: fornicating. Okay, those are new for me. Yeah, I, I, I have the submit, attach, and fix. But right. feeding and fornicating. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that's all survival, right? It's all part of evolutionary, you know, thinking in terms of survival. So it, it's it really serves people well, and it served us well. All of our uh, development to be mistrusting, to doubt, to be afraid to have caution, right? Because you get eaten by a wild animal, you could be killed by an enemy tribe, or you could, you know, eat a berry that was poisonous, or you could do something that would take your life. We still have those genetic markers. We still have that primitive brain that's there, that's in charge. That's why sometimes, you know, when you hear politicians, let's say Donald Trump, for example, you know, raising the issue of fear and, uh, um, you know, and, and also, uh, fighting and and uh, they're going to get you, and those kinds of things. It works. It's a primitive brain. And there's uh, something that keeps the brain from taking in too much new information. Mm. It's, it's a, a neuromodulator called links one links one is a neuromodulator that kind of protects what you know and doesn't let stuff in very easily. Wow. So if you've been raised a particular kind of way to a certain kind of belief, then it doesn't really let things in very easily. That's why education at a very early age and exposure to diversity and to all kinds of ideas is, is really really important. And um, you know that's the problem right now that exists in society is that you know people have control of the education system that continually you know churn out the same kind of uh, uh, racist uh, white supremacist narrative that exists. You know there's no one that's more important than you know, uh, white people, white leaders, white, you know, explorers, white politicians, you know, and um, indigenous people can't even get anybody in the, in the mix of these kinds of things because everyone else is trying to get in. But if, you know, schools would open up to that, then kids, you know, would, would have be more flex, you know, cognitively flexible. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder to uh, be able to uh, open up to these kinds of things. And so that's how it served us. It served us because our brains don't have that capacity to um, trust so much. You know, people say, well, that's not true, you know. Well, fundamentally, it is true. Other people, um, you know, there's some experiments that have been done, people have talked about it, where you, you take away a mouse's fear in an experiment. You make that mouse a loving mouse and to care about things, and um, the cat will eat him up, right, because you don't fear the cat. You take another <laughs> mouse, and you make that mouse afraid of cats, and so he'll watch and be very scared. That mouse will, won't get eaten by a cat, but he'll probably die of cancer or heart disease yeah. because he's worried all the time, right? This is, this is how we are as human beings. So we that have anxiety. Find, yeah, we have to find some kind of place you know, in the middle where we're you know, guarded and, and, and thoughtful but, and, and, and um, cautious, but yet open. And that's where, you know, and, and embracing and that kind of thing, that's where that cognitive flexibility comes in. That's where I think to me mindfulness comes in.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: but it's also not just mindfulness for me, it's neuro because you have to understand that things that I'm talking about are all part of this early brain development and trauma and has been with our species for a long time. And We've, we've had all these different kinds of development in our body, like these different kinds of comp genes, which uh, express for or warriors or warriors, depending upon the number of uh, variants.
0: You're saying warriors, as in, right. I worry too much about whether or not the sky is going to fall on me, That's right. or right. warriors, meaning I'm going to go forward and, right. yeah, conquer yeah. or whatever, yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and, um, um, and we have these different variants, too, that, that exist, you know, for happiness. It's one called the FAAH, the Fa variant, right? Where you find that particular uh, uh, genetic variant is in populations where that are, uh, have a greater propensity to be happy and to laugh, right? Along with uh, people who are in collectivist cultures who all have a, um, a serotonin transfer gene, uh, the 5-H-T-T-L-P-R uh, uh, is what it is. And if you have, um, and when you look at Indigenous cultures, you'll, you'll find out that those collectivist cultures love, love to laugh. They love humor. Yes. And that's one of the things that, you know, raises dopamine levels and serotonin levels, turns down this, uh, the um the anxiety and, and turns down, you know, uh, any of these kinds of uh, other uh, um, things that, you know, cause stress and, and so on. These other um, uh, neurochemicals, right? Um, so, so I think that's, that's how it served us though. Back to your question is like, it serves us to be cautious. It serves us to be, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, non-trusting. And so, you know, but what happens is that that's, then we have to do something about that and to get people to understand that, you know, just because you don't trust, just because, you know, you have to be cautious doesn't mean you have to hate or destroy something that you see, you know. Let's learn about it, let's figure it out, let's find out what's beautiful about it, let's find out what's helpful about it, you know. And lo and behold, that's what we've been finding out about everything, about animals, about, you know, uh, the scary boogeyman in the forest, you know, or the waters or the, we're finding out about parasites and those kinds of things that we tried to completely eliminate and cultures that we completely tried to eliminate. Wow, they had all these beneficial uh, ideas and, and these beautiful you know, philosophies and, this, and these different kinds of uh, uh, evidence-based medicines and discoveries that we completely destroyed. Like what happened to the, to the, uh, to the uh, Mayan codices that the Spaniards came in and destroyed all these codices that had all this knowledge. And um, those, kind of, those things happen because the human being is fairly primitive in that, in that manner. And one of the things we know now is that you know, contemplative practices help to break down some of that kind of primitive thinking and that, and that sort of fallback to the five Fs so we can be more flexible in our relationship to one another.
0: Yeah, yeah, I so appreciate that, and 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 really the big picture, and the and the more like sitting on your cushion, um, <laughs> watching your thoughts picture, um, and and my mentor always says, you know, how can we be relaxed and alert, you know, and uh, is there a way to be uh, taking your seat, noble and dignified, and also being mindful of your environment while not being so black and white about it, right? Yeah. Um, being more flexible, not so rigid.
1: Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I think, you know, when I think about mindfulness, I think most people think about sitting mindfulness. But uh, among indigenous people, there are so many different ways, you know, that people have practiced being aware, right? And um, some of the things that I've been looking at myself in my own research are really sort of center around a number of different practices. And those practices are, you know, sort of related to everything from movement, like I said, to sleep, to um, exposing yourself to... um, Mild uh, bioenergetic uh, stress, like sitting in really hot saunas or sitting in really cold, you know, pools. Those kinds of things, you know, uh, uh, release what they call, um, um, gosh, mine's just blank today. But um, um, <laughs> hardly. Yeah, but um, um, uh, any of these different kinds of things that that people do, uh, even running, for example. You know, running has a way uh, to uh, raise our brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is, um, I forget the guy's name, uh, who uh, coined the phrase, a miracle grow for the brain. So let's say uh, when you have these running cultures, all indigenous people that I've seen have had running cultures. So they go out and they run with young men, young women, even elders. They go out and they run and they sing as they run. They sing a song like a call cadence, like they do in the military but it may be a spiritual call case where they're singing to the universe and to the stars and to the plants as they run along, acknowledging mother earth as they run along. So what they're doing is they're not only, uh, they're uh, raising their brain derived neurotrophic factor and raising their, um, ca- endocannabinoids in their brain. They're also reducing, you know, um, stress and anxiety in their body and different factors that produce toxic toxins in their body that cause, um, that cause uh, depression, mm. um, but th- these are these are things I think that you know um, that are really really so important for us to think about in terms of like in terms of when we think that's how I think neurodecolonization is for me. It's not just sitting on a cushion, which is which is important. I'm don't get it's wrong. a
0: part of it. It's yeah. not certainly the big picture. I mean, you yeah. could stare at a tree and be in awe,
1: right. As, right? as as
0: and 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 even be in a in a group and and do that. I think maybe Pardon. it was in yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, or you,
1: you could stand and sing to a tree. Right. Like a, lot of, a lot of cultures have, a lot of indigenous cultures stand there. Like uh, my, you know, particular people, are, uh, Arikara people have, have uh, many times uh, back in the past stood in front of this uh, uh, tree, they call, you know, uh, 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 Nathuissa, you know, this mother who is coming, she's coming to help the people. And the, the tree was out there, a cedar tree out in, in the middle of the prairie and they sing to this tree like its mother. They sing to this tree. They sing all these iterations of songs of respect. Our mother, our sister, help us, you know, be with us, show us the right way. They, you know, all these different kinds of things that they say. We know now what happens to the brain when they do that. After they do it for a long period of time, what happens to the brain is the parietal lobe on the right side of the brain goes quiet. The pride, I and why is that important? And, that, and that's a meditative process we're talking about. But it goes quiet. The, the, the parietal lobe and that part of the brain is really about um, spatial reasoning it says well when it's activated it says i'm here the tree is over there but if i sing to that tree long enough like it's my grandmother and with respect and love and i really acknowledge that as a living being that part of the parietal lobe the right side goes quiet and that spatial distance shrinks and pretty soon i am one with the tree the tree Mm. is one my mother you know i'm the fragrance i'm the roots i'm the bark I am, you know, um, you know, this is my relative. So now we know from uh, brain imaging now how that works. We know why, how Buddha had his you know, enlightenment. We know how Jesus had the enlightenment. We know how every spiritual leader had the enlightenment. Every indigenous person that's done that has had their enlightenment. And that's why today you see indigenous people have such a close relationship with the land, the waters, the air, the stars, the animals, Mother Earth, because that culture evolved with that kind of thinking and it made room in the brain for that kind of thinking so that parietal lobe would quiet down so we could understand the tree, the plant, we could have that conversation with them. Now whether or not we really had that conversation, I don't know, I do believe that. But, I, but I, what I can tell you is that when you do that long enough, those kinds of practices. That's amazing. That part of the brain gets quiet and you can have this transcendent experience. You yeah. know how that happens now. Mm-hmm. Try to quiet people down around the world to have that transcendent experience with the world, you know, and it could happen. But it involves singing. It involves com- commitment. It involves being connected. And you can't do it over the course of a weekend or a workshop. This is a, this is a thing that indigenous people did around the world. And these are the things that were most attacked by settlers in colonialism, you know, because they thought it was primitive, it was worshiping a tree, it was worshiping the devil, it was, you know, heathen practices, right? So now, through their own so-called science, they can look at the brains of people and say, wow, this is what happens, you know? And if you think about it, say, this is what we destroyed,
0: right? Yeah, this is what we destroyed, and this is also what can be recovered.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: And this is also what can be recovered and, and remembered and, um, and, and, uh, and reconciled and reckoned with. Um, I feel as though I could really spend um, all day speaking with you on multiple levels. And I'm also recognizing that we're probably about time. And I wanted to leave you with a little bit of room if there's anything that you wanted to share Um, because I just don't feel like we'll ever be able to talk about everything in an hour. However, I do feel like you have an open invitation to come and rejoin us for episode two sometime.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I have been so encouraged, you know, and so um, uh, moved by Indigenous people and their um, unwillingness to let their cultures die, Mm. to continue to... Bring forward the practices to continue to try to you know reconnect with those kinds of things in spite of everything they've been through, and I, I see that happening with a lot of young people today. I saw that um, uh, at Standing Rock, yeah, where a lot of people, a lot of young people, were um, leading, you know, um, this movement using traditional ceremony, prayers, songs. You know, rituals, um, speaking and, and, and behaving like, you know, their ancestors did, respecting water, life. Um, and, and, and we saw what happened there how the corporate forces and you know, the government came down and crushed them. But they're resilient, they came back again, they're still coming back. So that's what I admire is that you know, um, you have to, you know, I'm thankful for that. I think indigenous people have so much, there's so much they've added to the world. And if people ever discover what they added to the world, they'd be amazed the things that they do and and the things that they believe, the words that they say, the medicines that they take, the foods that they eat, the governments that they have have all been influenced by indigenous people. And indigenous people are, you know, are, are there, you know, trying to bring forward these ideas now when we're sitting at, at, at the precipice of calamity with climate change that's happening. Um, again, inviting people to understand and learn about, you know, who they are and how they can help. You know? So that's, maybe that's, you know, what I would say an ending is that, you know, that's what inspired me to do the work that I do. Everything that I've done is drawn from indigenous science and knowledge and it's brought together with some of the, the Western science too, that helps to kind of show that, um, and it doesn't really need it in Western science to validate it, but I think some people need that to, to show how Western science has saying, wow, you know, this is really important. This is what we've found. And I'm saying, you know, Indigenous people have been doing that for how many millennia they've known that for how many millennia it's I'm, I'm so happy that you've kind of finally kind of found, you know, that, you know, um, that, um, indigenous knowledge and science you know is uh, that you've found room to validate it in your own paradigms right although we didn't need you to do that but I'm, I'm glad that you've discovered the trail now and that you're no longer walking blind that you see that there's a path that has already been sort of laid out by ancestors so maybe that's you know i think people just continue to think about that kind of stuff so.
0: Mm, mm, mm yes, the path that has been laid out by the ancestors, that if we are wise and we can tap into what's there uh, right. and not just a sort of knowledge, information, data-seeking automatons, but perhaps uh, wisdom seekers uh, right. taking, taking a walk down that path, um, we too can reconnect with, uh, with all of the wisdom we're going to need to carry forward. So Dr. Michael Yellowbird, uh, thank you so much for your time today on Rerooted. Um, So appreciate, and I hope we can have another conversation at some point. I would love to.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me on your uh, podcast, and and, um, I hope uh, I can be on your show again, and I'll continue to listen. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Have a great day.